All right, everybody, we have a little bit of a different episode this week, different format, different style. Jack and I are actually at a conference with a group of state leaders. And um, in this conversation, we covered a variety of stories. We talked about breaches, stories from experience and from the trenches. We offer some words of wisdoms, but most importantly, we wanted to hear what it sounded like. And this is part two of three of that series, and we hope you enjoy it. Let's pivot a little bit. You know, another question that would be kind of interesting for the crew, in case you're interested in it, is sort of like the flavors of hacking, right? The different kinds of hacking that we're going to touch and we're going to see. And I just want to touch on what you just mentioned, because this is the one that naturally comes to my mind, which relates to the construction of the software and the applications. It's a very, very challenging process, right? Aside from the end user mistake population, the second most likely cause of badness is vulnerable applications. But like Log4j, right? This is a supply chain application problem where a group of well-intentioned, hardworking, very small number of developers created an open source package that became quite popular. And it found its way everywhere into lots and lots of different things. And when a vulnerability was discovered in it, all of those things which had taken advantage of it and probably didn't even know it. I would wager that most of the organizations that use the tools that embedded it had no idea either that it existed. So that application and the search for vulnerabilities inside applications that can be exercised is a super popular thing for these passionate hobbyists slash monetizing criminals to use. Right, so if I could just like throw out you know, one interesting kind of hacking is if you think about the applications that you rely on, how many of them have ever been forced to go through a security review? How many of them have been aggressively tested to see if they can be tipped over and cause problems not only for their own users or the private data that's held by that service, but by other you know, adjacent services or collaterally attached services? How many of them perhaps were written by vendors who aren't even in business anymore? And how many of them actually have teeth in their contracts that say if they're found to be vulnerable at some point down the road or some component like Log4j is vulnerable, how many of them are contractually obligated to fix these problems? Or are you all just faced with the task of having this known vulnerable application? Typically, those end up being vulnerable for a long time. And that's why that is one form of attacking that's extremely useful and very productive for the bad people community, because once that vulnerability is found, unless it gets publicly acknowledged and exposed, it's going to be vulnerable for a long time. Yeah. So <laughs> to run with that one, another reason why I think states are kind of on the back foot too is like, I just want to kind of put an exclamation on the vendor population, especially ones that maintain availability of applications and services for the state and particularly ones that have a responsibility for patching and maintaining security of not only their systems, but also their supply chain. And I have to tell you that if you are in the position where you rely on a vendor to perform a service or perform a development effort or ensure some level of availability of your systems for your constituents, a lot of times if there's a vulnerability within their application, like Jack said, either like they may not be in business anymore or they're gonna stick you with a bill to fix it, or they're just gonna give you the middle finger and tell you they're not gonna do anything and just, you gotta live with it, right? And I think that unfortunately is the world of application security and service security within state government. And if you experience any part of this, 
and I see some people nodding their head, is that like I would tell you like you're you're not alone. Like this is something that kind of plagues the entirety of all state governments that what I've seen today, and it's just an area where we have to catch up, I guess. Let me give you a great example. State of Missouri. I don't know if any of you remember this. Um, the governor uh, actually took the time to do a press conference on the evil hackers that had broken into their site. But in fact, it was a writer from St. Louis Dispatch, maybe? Yeah. St. Louis Dispatch had written about the fact that they had discovered this vulnerability. The vulnerability that the vendor had accidentally occasioned inside the web-facing application was they had simply put all the social security numbers of teachers into the HTML um, of the website. And the hack was view source. And so here's a vendor who has probably said, listen, we need a re- an application that respond to requests for information about teachers, could you please give it to us? And here's what we do. We'll just drag it out of the database. And they just dragged all sorts of stuff. They're like social security numbers for all these educators. And it's in clear text on the website. Now, basically, the press conference included the police. We're going to go arrest this reporter because what a horrible hacker. Eventually, it sort of calmed down a little bit. We thought it was kind of humorous because what the hell? It's a show me state, right? So they were just showing a little more than they intended to. But I think it speaks to Justin's point that a lot of this work ends up happening in the context of no security requirements or no understanding that over time the nature of security changes, right? Every day, the nature of security changes. Yeah. The other one that just kind of add on a similar theme, a lot of times, at least in my experience, and I could be totally speaking for myself, is that the news media misses on what the key points of what some of these cyber events are. And based on whatever narrative or dialogue that kind of surrounds this thing or whatever point someone's trying to get across is going to drive the content and the origination of that story. Jack just gave a good one. But the other one that comes to mind is the university hospital up in our neck of the woods that was also impacted. So this is the story. So university hospital system, ransomware attack, takes 20 thousand assets offline in the course of an hour hospital stops place shuts down for weeks can't take any surgeries hospital data systems code blue yep so the nurses and doctors in the emergency room were back to pen and paper so the storyline goes as far as like media right is based saying the hospital doesn't have enough funding to buy EDR, and they don't have enough funding to do all of the initiatives that they want. And because of that, this breach happened. Because you didn't improve our budget, this breach happened. So it's your fault. Sorry. No one, not once, talked about how that breach came to be and the long stream of systemic failures that caused that. So it started with someone coming in with a personal laptop on personal email connected to their systems. It wasn't even like a entity-owned device. So someone plugged in their own device into the hospital network and it perpetuated from there. But no one asked the question, be like, how did this one attack take out 20,000 assets? So not only do we have a personal device plugged in, so that means like if you're in a waiting room and you have your laptop and you're like, hey, I need, a, need an internet signal, I'm going to jack into the wall, you're completely on all of their systems. And by the way, nothing's segmented, so you have access to everything. So yeah, maybe budgets got cut because you couldn't afford EDR, but like, there's fundamental IT hygiene that should have happened way before that that would have lessened the impact of that. But that wasn't the narrative. The narrative was 
people in the right position trying to advocate for more budget dollars because they were a state-funded organization, right? And so, like, in the case of Missouri, in the case of this, it's like, it's good examples, I think, of um, storylines that kind of distract from, like, what the core facts are of some of these things. So we've given some examples of some of these specific outcomes of some of these attacks. You know, I, I want us to make sure that we take a step back and see if any of you have any questions. But before we get there, I just want to just make one more thing clear that you may already know about, right? In, in being responsive to the question about, tell us a little bit more about the techniques of hacking, what have you. Realize that most of what you're going to see is almost completely automated. It used to be that people would be like, why would someone want to attack me? I'm just this agency or I'm just this group or maybe I'm a small company, whatever it is. I'm not going to worry about it. But literally, probably 10 or maybe 15 years ago, people just began scanning IP address blocks, right? Simply take a range of addresses and point an active scanner against it and start looking for things, Justin had mentioned earlier, look for things that may be vulnerable, that you may be vulnerable to, right? Or maybe I do what he described in terms of scraping email addresses and see if I can get a 1% hit rate on people opening an email that has within it an attachment or has within it a link that's going to get somebody sick. And so when you're thinking about how does this matter to us that these necessarily directed at state government or at state agencies, some may be because they recognize that there's an opportunity for public-minded people to be more open to messages from the public, but at the same time realize that you are as vulnerable as everybody else is to the automated attack that's going to be looking for openings and for weaknesses. You know, perhaps instead of the hot Ethernet jack in the wall, what they're looking for is non-password protected wireless networks. Or perhaps they're looking for services that have been misconfigured in AWS so they can access, get access in a way they're not supposed to. Recognize that a lot of these things can be automated. And so that your reaction to the existence of the campaigns we're talking about is both, wow, that's a bad campaign. Let me make sure that you know I understand it. I'll know. I'll recognize it. Or I can block it. But also recognize that you want to be watching for that random spew of people's you know information, looking to get in. Brute force attacks, um, spray and pray attacks. Basically, watching for the evidence that someone is looking all around there. You know, if you're at your house and you see somebody who's checking every window lock and t- twisting every door, you're going to know you have a problem, even though nobody's hurt you yet. And so there's a number of stages in the life cycle of these attacks where I think it's interesting for us to just to, to let you know that it's not all necessarily targeted. In fact, most of it won't be. It'll just be automated. And it's misconfigurations, open windows, what have you, that can cause the problems that make them a reality as a threat to U.S. organizations. One of the things I think folks fail to realize nowadays is there isn't armies and fleets of cyber armies that exist on any one country. There seems to be this idea that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of cyber wars that exist in Russia and they're, or China and they're, you know, they're targeting us. And sure, like nation state hacking does occur. It 100% does. It's usually super targeted and there's a destination and a purpose in mind. And by the way, like if they want to get in, it's likely they already have, they know how they would get a foothold within your organization. But what Jack was saying, like the majority of things that we see in like SolarWinds is like a really good example of this is all of these things are automated. It's coming back home to whatever country it resides in. And then you have a human looking down through the list for what's interesting. 
right? So like, let's run with that example. So solar winds was the big one that came out. was like three years ago at this point. Thousands and thousands of organizations, email addresses and domains compromised. I don't want to say compromised, but discovered. Domains that were susceptible and vulnerable. Everybody seems to think like this is, there's thousands of people just kind of churning through data and it's only a matter of time before you're going to get popped. Rather, what ends up happening in reality is this treasure trove of information is brought back to a team of 10 to 15 people that are thumbing through the targets that are of most interest. And that is exactly why, like when you look at the solar winds breach, it never impacted the smaller businesses. It was all the big name brands that we all know and that was going to get attention from people. Like it's the Microsoft, it's the Qualcomm's, it's the whomever's of the world. It's all the brands that we know. And um, it just starts with, with a small group of people with automated tools. That's how it works. And thanks for listening. As always, if you're looking for excellent cybersecurity help, just looking for general advice or how-tos, you can find us at info at newharborsecurity.com and we'll catch you on the next episode.